All right. Well, we are indeed continuing our look at the Gospel of Luke. We began last week, uh, and we saw last week in Luke chapter 1 that uh, the angel Gabriel had been sent with a message to the priest, Zechariah, who was serving in the temple at that time. And the message was about the forerunner of the Messiah. And this morning, we see Gabriel bring a second message. Our text today is continuing in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38. If you do have a Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along, not only as I read, but as we go through this text. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, and would like to use one, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath. Uh, you'll find the ESV translation there, and that our text today will be on pages 855 and 856 of that Bible. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So our text begins with, in the sixth month. What does that mean, in the sixth month of what? Well, again, if we're reading this straight through, uh, we would see right before this in verse 24, after the message was given to Zechariah about John the Baptist, it says, in these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me, and the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. So it says, in the sixth month, that is, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is what we're talking about. The angel Gabriel is sent from God again. Now, we can see already right here just a massive contrast. Because we, we see here that this angel, his name is Gabriel. It, it means something like God's mighty one. 
He's an archangel, and, and as he said to Zechariah, he stands in the presence of God. This angel has been sent before to deliver very important messages. Notice here he is not sent to Rome. He's not sent to the seat of power and authority in the world at that day. He's not even sent to a city like in the past when he was sent to Daniel, to Susa, the, the capital city of Persia. He's not even sent to the temple in Jerusalem, which is where he was sent previously to speak to Zechariah. He appeared there in the holy place just before the curtain of the Holy of Holies. No, here he is sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was a nothing city. You remember Nathaniel even said, Nazareth, what comes out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It was a, a somewhat podunk town, a despised town, something that a place where most people would hate to live. One scholar even says this, the fact that Nazareth must be identified as a town in Galilee indicates its obscurity. It's not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. Gabriel is sent from the presence of God to a nothing city where no one would want to live. And notice here perhaps an, an even greater contrast is not only the city he is sent to, but the person to whom he is sent. He's not sent this time to a prophet, the prophet Daniel, who served in the halls of power and, and proclaimed amazing uh, prophecies and apocalyptic literature to the people of Israel about the coming future that would happen hundreds of years from then. He's not sent to a high priest or a priest serving in the temple. He, he's not sent to Caesar Augustus. He's, he's not sent to King Herod. He's sent to a virgin betrothed to a man. <coughs> Martin Luther said this, he might have gone to Jerusalem. He might have picked out Caiaphas's daughter, who was rich, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. Gabriel, who is sent with important messages, now bears the most important message the world has ever heard. And he is sent to the lowliest of the low. He is sent to a nobody from nowhere. You know, that's really what God's word says about God's grace. That God's grace extends to the, those in power, in the halls of power and prestige and riches, and it extends all the way to the lowliest of the low, those who have nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us today, Christian, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. See, there were some that were, but not many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing 
things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The virgin's name was Mary. And all we know about her really is that she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Betrothal is kind of like engagement, only it was more than that. I mean, engagement is serious uh, in, in our own time, but, but betrothal was even more of a locked-in situation. It was the first stage of a two-stage Jewish marriage process. According to one New Testament scholar, he says this, the initial stage of betrothal involves a formal witnessed agreement to marry and a financial exchange of a bride price. At this point, the woman legally belongs to the groom and is referred to as his wife. So the betrothal already makes Mary Joseph's wife. However, the marriage ceremony takes place when the husband takes the wife into his home a year later. So Mary has been betrothed. She's already legally Joseph's wife. I mean, it's locked in. He's not going to officially take her into his home until a year later, but it's a done deal. Now, we're not told Mary's age, but betrothals, since they were a year before uh, the official wedding occurred, betrothal could be as young as 12 in that day and age. Uh, Women got married a lot younger then. Mary could be 12, she could be 13, 14, we don't know, but she's probably very young. And she, we're told here that the man she's betrothed to was named Joseph, but the important point here is that he is of the house of David. It's important that he be of the house of David because he is going to legally adopt Jesus as his human son. And all over the Old Testament, we are told that the Messiah was to be a descendant of David, was to be in David's house. We see this in the, in the covenant that God makes with David himself. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 89, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. The call to worship that we had this morning of, of this child who is born, who's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. We see this over and over. There are more that I could quote from the Old Testament saying that the Messiah would be of the house of David. We see here Gabriel's greeting, and it's, I want to note it because it's quite amazing. Here he is, again, one of God's mightiest angels, sent to a a young girl, a, a teenager, again from a nothing town. And yet, notice how he addresses her. He addresses her almost like royalty. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Thomas Aquinas said this, It was written in praise of Abraham that he received angels hospitably. 
and that he showed them reverence. But it was never heard that an angel showed reverence to anyone until he saluted the Blessed Virgin. Notice that Mary is addressed as the favored one. Now, if you think back to our series in Daniel, Daniel was addressed in a similar way when when Gabriel came to him. After Daniel had been praying this incredibly lengthy and in-depth prayer of confession and repentance, Gabriel came to him. And Gabriel said, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Similar kind of message to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. Now, you may have heard it quoted before from the Latin Vulgate that he says, uh, full of grace. That's not exactly what he says here. Full of grace does not mean that she was sinless or that she was some dispenser of grace. No, favored one means that she is the recipient of God's grace. Mary receives the same message that Daniel did when Daniel was praying prayers of repentance. In fact, we, we're not even told of Mary like we were of Zechariah and Elizabeth that she is you know, not, that, that she's righteous. Remember uh, those, those words used of Zechariah and Elizabeth that they followed God's commands, that they were righteous, they were blameless before God. None of that is said of Mary. I don't think she was uh, you know, out murdering people. But there's no sense that she was in any way sinless. We are told, however, that she is greatly troubled at the saying. She has a similar reaction to most people when they encounter angels. Zechariah was terrified. She's not so much terrified, but she's troubled. She's perplexed, probably fearful as well, it doesn't say. Because Gabriel, nonetheless, says, do not be afraid, Mary. You know, God's angels when they appear in Scripture, almost always, I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm straining to think of a time when they didn't induce an immense amount of fear in the person who saw them. Time and again, when God's angels showed up, the, the people that they spoke to would cower in fear. Even the most hardened soldiers would drop dead with fear. Our society likes to present angels, especially around this time, as little chubby babies uh, with wings and rosy cheeks, maybe even wearing diapers. Uh, or, uh, you know, if not a baby, we're, we're told that an angel is a nice, kindly old man named Clarence who just wants to help people so he can earn his wings. That's not the biblical description. Gabriel is a warrior. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 Assyrian troops by himself. Angels are not chubby little cherubs. And so just as Gabriel says to Zechariah, so now he tells Mary, do not be afraid. Now why does he tell her that? Again, it's not because she has some inherent righteousness. Notice why she is not to fear. His answer is an extremely important phrase found all over the Old Testament. He says, you have found favor with God. That phrase, again, is found everywhere. Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Joseph found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. Ruth found favor in the eyes of Boaz. David found favor in the eyes of Saul. Esther found favor in the eyes of King Xerxes. Notice every time someone finds favor in the eyes of someone else, they are the lesser. And that they are almost unexpectedly or uh, unmeritedly finding favor in the eyes of, of a greater. And that's the case here. This phrase, you have found favor, means that Mary is like the rest of us. She's a sinner saved by grace. She is not chosen to bear Christ because beforehand she was found to be pure and holy. She was, in fact, chosen for God's good purposes. And God gave to her, like he does to all of us whom he saves, his grace. That word favor is the Greek word for grace. She found grace from God. She, like the rest of us, needs a Savior. And that's exactly who Gabriel tells her she's about to give birth to. Behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. What Gabriel tells Mary is almost word for word the exact same thing that Isaiah foretells. In Isaiah 7.14 it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now notice, there's no hoping on God's part that somehow this is all going to work out. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, hoping that somehow, beyond hope, that, that a Savior will be born and that this uh, pregnancy will come to term and that Jesus is going to do what he hopes he does. And he's not hoping, beyond hope, thinking that perhaps all this is going to fail. No, notice that his words, you will conceive, you will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now remember when Gabriel came to Daniel and told him about all the things that were going to happen in history. He never used the word might. This may happen. This might happen. I think this will happen. No, he, he told him exactly, down to the exact detail, what was going to happen hundreds of years from then. Is it any wonder then that the God who is sovereign over all of human history is sovereign over redemptive history? Just as Gabriel didn't come along asking if Mary would be willing to play this part in God's redemptive plan, so he doesn't ask us, Christian. When God reaches into our lives that are wayward, that are lost in darkness, when we find favor in his eyes, when he pours out his grace upon us, he doesn't ask us, will you come to me? I hope you do because I'm lonely up here in heaven and I need someone and I hope you accept my invitation. No, God pours his Holy Spirit in us and he changes our hearts and he brings the dead to life and we hear the words of the gospel and a new heart that has been changed receives it 
willingly. He says to us, as he said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus said, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Here again, there is a huge contrast. This time it is between John the Baptist and Jesus. John's name means the Lord is gracious. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Whereas John will be great before the Lord, notice there is no qualifier with Jesus. He is simply great. Great with no qualifier, scholars point out, when used by itself to describe anyone, it refers only to God himself in the Old Testament. The point is, is that in every way possible, Jesus is superior to John. And John will say that when he comes along. There's one coming after me of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not worthy to be his lowest slave, John says, of Jesus. Now notice that Joseph is not referred to as his father. It does, the message is not that Jesus will be the son of your husband, Joseph. Mary is his mother, but his father is the Most High. The Most High, again, is always used to describe God. Acts 7, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Lamentations 3, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? it is, is it not the mouth from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? This child born from Mary will not be Joseph's son. He will be rather the son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is Joseph's son by adoption, but he is God's son from all eternity and in Space and time, God's son by conception. Remember the book of Daniel. Daniel speaks of God as the most high, I think more than any other Old Testament book. Remember when Daniel is given a vision in Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the ancient of days. To whom was Daniel told would receive an everlasting kingdom. If you go back and read Daniel 7, Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. What does Gabriel tell Mary? Immediately after saying that Jesus is the Son of the Most High, he says, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right from the beginning, from this message to Mary that Gabriel gives, we see that Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Notice he's also given the throne of his father David. He has given reign over the house of Jacob forever. Jesus is the heir to David and the heir to Jacob. Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Notice Mary's reaction. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now Zechariah asked a question as well. Zechariah's question was, sounds pretty similar. I mean, on the surface, there doesn't seem to be much difference. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah, however, is punished. He's punished for not believing Gabriel's words. Mary is not. Why? Why can't Zechariah ask a question? He can't, but Mary can, or so it seems. Well, on the surface, their questions may seem similar, but remember Zechariah's message was given in response to his prayers. We're not told anything about Mary praying. She's been engaged, betrothed. She's about to be married in roughly a year from then, I guess. And she's just living her life. Sure, she prays. But Zechariah had prayed specifically, probably for a child a long time ago, and more specifically when he was praying in the temple at that moment, praying for the Messiah, for Israel. And that's what Gabriel said. Your prayers have been answered. Zechariah's question, therefore, was rooted in unbelief. Remember, Gabriel, he, it's like he arrived saying, Zechariah, God is answering your prayers, and here's how he's going to answer them. And Zechariah responds with, well, that doesn't seem possible. I mean, look at our situation. I'm old. Elizabeth is barren. How in the world is God going to do this? He didn't believe the angel's words that God had the power to do what he says he's going to do. Mary, her question is not rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in confusion. Zechariah, in other words, is questioning God's ability, but Mary is questioning God's process. Notice Mary doesn't question the substance of the message. She's only asking how it's going to all play out. Zechariah's question is how can God do this? Mary's question is how will God do do this. You know, we find all throughout the Bible saints asking questions of God. We find this a lot in the Psalms. The psalmists ask questions a lot. God, I don't know why you're doing this. Why would you do it this way? Why do, does it seem like you're putting me in this kind of situation? God, I don't understand. God does not forbid us to ask questions about what he's doing. But I think what we see here in in this contrast is that when we ask questions, we ought not ever question God's attributes, even while we're questioning his reasoning or his process. You know, I you know that uh, most of you know that my best friend, who was a also a PCA pastor, died only a couple of months ago, and uh, I have taken it upon myself to uh, gladly to uh, give his daughter, Jessie, who's a senior this year, a call once a week, and, uh, and she has asked if she can talk to me and, and run biblical and theological questions by me, uh, things that she would have asked her father. And so uh, I talked to her last week. Uh, we talked for, for about an hour, and uh, she asked such amazing um, questions. Her, her questions are, are, were just... Um, so mature. Her questions were all about God's sovereignty over death. Her questions were, were why would 
would God uh, do what he did? Why would he take my father now? But all throughout her questions, she, she kept, uh, kept them in context. She would say, I mean, obviously, I know God is loving. I know God loves me. I know God is good. I just, I can't jive then why this happened when God is good. Never once did she say, I don't think God's good anymore. <clears throat> it was a great phone call, and I think she modeled what, how we ought to ask our questions. Of course, sometimes we will struggle with that. Sometimes we will fall and we will struggle even to believe that God is loving or that God is good. Thank God that our standing before him is not based on our own righteousness, but on Christ's, who never questioned the goodness of his Father. Why is she confused? Well, because while Mary might be only uh, 12 or 14 or so and might have lived a long time ago, she knows how this usually works. <laughs> she asks, how will this be? I I'm a virgin. Mary's words literally are, how will this happen since I have never known a man? Notice that the text stresses that she is a virgin three times. We're, we're not supposed to miss this, obviously. I mean, the text says it twice in verse 27, and now here in verse 34. Scripture is clear that Mary is a virgin when she conceives the Lord Jesus. In fact, again, it was prophesied through Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And here again, we see another contrast between John and Jesus. John is conceived through natural means to a woman who was barren. Jesus is conceived through supernatural means into the womb of a woman who was a virgin. How is this going to happen? Well, Gabriel tells her in verses 35 through 37. And in the incarnation here, you see the work of the Trinity, the power of the Most High, the Father. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Son, the child, will be called holy, the Son of God. Notice here also the unmistakable language of creation. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the Most High said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, there are people who question the virgin birth. Just like I said last week, they'll strip everything miraculous away from Jesus and somehow still try to give him meaning, which is ridiculous. But those who question the virgin birth oftentimes will also question that the universe was created by God. The Bible is clear on both counts. I mean, if you're having trouble questioning how God could create a child in the womb of a virgin, just go back to Genesis 1. If God, out of nothing, by his power alone, creates the entire universe, it's no big deal at all that that same God, through his infinite power, could create a child in the womb of a virgin. But there's something I think even more 
amazing in these words here. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit come upon you. It, it's not only reflecting the language that we find in Genesis, but that phrase will overshadow you is the same phrase that in the Old Testament speaks of the Shekinah glory cloud that rested on the tabernacle and on the temple. In other words, the glory cloud that has been absent from the temple ever since the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of the original temple and the theft of the Ark of the Covenant, that Shekinah glory that has been absent, will return. The Shekinah glory is going to return, only it's going to return not to the temple, but in the form of this child. Jesus will be the temple. And the glory that shone in the Shekinah glory will shine from him, the apostles say. Gabriel says that the child is holy and the Son of God. Over and over again, we will see in Luke's Gospel that Jesus is recognized and proclaimed by beings to be the Holy Son of God. Interestingly, the first ones to do it are the demons. Of all the people roaming around on the face of the earth, the ones who have no doubt who he is are the demons who cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Eventually, the disciples will catch up. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. How about you? What have you come to believe that Jesus is? I don't know where all of you stand, obviously. I don't know what you believe as you sit here today. But you know, as you contemplate who Jesus of Nazareth is, the Bible gives you only one option. You either accept what the Bible says or you reject it. But you can't read the Bible and not conclude that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Holy One of God, God in the flesh, Son of God and Son of Man. Though Mary doesn't demand any verification, notice Gabriel gives her a sign anyway. He says, look, behold, Mary, in case you are doubting, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called bearing for, barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Do you understand that, Mary? Now, it's the, the words of Gabriel that dominate the passage. Mary only speaks twice. Her question in verse 34 and her incredible statement of faith in verse 38. And I want to look at that as we close. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary, I think, gives the most amazing answer here. She calls herself the servant of the Lord. That word there, servant, means slave, bondservant. What did it mean for Mary to be the servant of the Lord, to be his slave? Well, she says it. I mean, the person who makes the first statement, Lord, I am your servant, 
I am your slave. The person who says that, it only makes logical sense that that statement will be followed up by the second. Let it be to me according to your word. Lord, I'm, I'm not going to live by my word. I want to live by yours. As a slave, she is willing to be in complete service to her master, which means that it will be his word and not hers that will govern her life. What's this going to mean for her? Well, to bear the Christ is going to mean great joy at times. But you know, it will also mean great sorrow. You know, for Elizabeth, her pregnancy removed the stigma and the reproach that she had among her neighbors. She was barren. There was a stigma attached to that. And she even says that it removes that. But you know, for Mary, her pregnancy will most likely mean that stigma and reproach will attach themselves to her for the rest of her life. How many people do you think believed in the incarnation? How many people do you think, when they asked her, believed what she said? In fact, we hear this said of Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, you are doing the works that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Jesus carried that stigma with him. Mary was only 14 years old or so when she received news that her life was about to change and some of it for the worse. You know, it made me think back to Daniel who himself was only 14 when he was chosen by God to be exiled and to live a life of hardship away from his hometown for the rest of his life. What were Mary's goals for her own life? What were her dreams? Whatever they were, I'm sure they didn't include this. I'm sure she didn't wake up that morning thinking, I know what I'll do today. What is Mary's response well, it's not, no, no, Lord, this is too much for me to handle. Her response is, let it be to me according to your word. Christian, is that your response to God's sovereign will over your life? Because the same is true for you, as was true for Daniel, as was true for Mary. When God reaches into your life, when he chooses you, when he calls you to be his chosen person, you now live life according to his rules, according to his word. You become his slave. And now your life is filled with great joy and scripture promises you great sorrow from being united to Christ. Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hates me. Mary's response basically was, not my will, but yours. Mary's response ended up being her son's response too. As he fell down in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, knowing what serving his father perfectly meant, he said, not my will, Father, but yours. 
The first gospel ever pronounced is found in Genesis 3.15, all the way back in Genesis, right after the creation account. We have sin, we have fall, we have the fall, and then we have God bringing judgment. And right in the midst of those words of judgment, he brings the first gospel. God promises that one day the seed of the woman will arrive and he will crush the head of Satan, but in so doing he will have his heel bruised. How appropriate is it that Gabriel's message about the Messiah would come not to Caesar, not to King Herod, but to a nobody from nowhere because that message foreshadowed the ministry of the son who was born. The message perfectly reflected our Lord himself, who though he dwelt from all eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, humbled himself, divested himself of all of that privilege and made himself nothing. And in saying, Lord, not my will but yours, found himself hanging on a Roman cross. And it was on that cross where he became not only Mary's son, but also her Savior. It was on that day, Christian, that he became your Savior as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. This message that you sent to Mary through the angel, Gabriel. Father, we just pray that you would instill it, impress it upon our hearts this morning that that message is for us, that to us a son is born and to us a son is given. Father, may we leave here with joy, even in the midst of sorrow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.